Do you freestyle your interview questions? Have you ever passed on a prospective employee based on a gut feel? The fact is, most interviewers form their conclusions about candidates within the first 90 seconds of an interview. But have you thought about how your biases in your interviewing process can actually hurt your company culture and performance? Today on the Catch em and Keep em podcast, we are examining how to interview in ways that support culture add and avoid creating a culture-restricted environment. When you lift the cultural restrictions, you can actually start seeing new ideas and solutions to your biggest problems. Welcome to the Catch em and Keep em podcast with Melissa Glennie and Mark Altman. We're here to help you hire, engage, and retain the best talent to help you make your vision a reality. Hello, welcome back to the Catch Em Keep Em podcast. Uh, it's great to see you, Mark. Thanks for taking the time out to talk about biases. Melissa, There's a part we've heard a little bit about recently. Yeah, Melissa, I'm really excited to talk about this. I think it's so timely and uh, it so relates to effective recruiting um, and hiring, and it also relates to performance management. So I'm 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 really excited about this. Yeah, you know, Mark, I, um, I, I'll confess, in preparation for talking today, I took an assessment that I found that Harvard created, and it's called the Social Attitude Assessment. And I, I think that most people consider themselves to be pretty unbiased, at least I do. And I have to tell you, I've got some explaining to do to myself. It was really eye-opening. So I'm going to be sitting <laughs> with, with these results and really doing some self-examination. Um, but as I thought about it, I just want to, I'll just put like one thing out there before we really dive in. I think it's important to be able to talk about biases um, and, and realize it's not something we have to be ashamed of because uh, it, we are wired to be biased for really good reasons, for our survival, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so it, just realizing that it's natural and having the self-awareness and higher reasoning uh, so that we can all, you know, play well in the sandbox and be supportive of, of each other as human beings. Um, you know, I, I think that it's just the self-awareness that we need to have, but no, no shame in, in realizing that we just naturally are biased. Yeah, and I think uh, to your point, it's this element of self-awareness, understanding what we don't know and what we don't realize. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're spot on. And I, I find that um, there's this thing about biases. It's not like you said, you know, there's no shame. I, I think a lot of people who feel victims of bias will appreciate and would appreciate if the topic was brought out in the open and people would start acknowledging some of this stuff whether it's in the workplace or outside the workplace. So I, I, I see it as very positive. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I love that you're bringing a perspective to the table of um, bias and performance management. I've honestly never given that any consideration because I consider, you know, the I see the bias in the interview process. I've seen it for 20 years. Um, and and it, it's certainly, you know, unfortunate that some cohorts experience it more than others. Um, but I've always thought, well, once somebody's in the door, then those biases have been dissolved, of course, right? Right, right. But, right. but not so, apparently. No, not at yeah. all, no. So what, you know, so I'm, I'm so curious, how do you see bias in performance management presenting itself most commonly? 
Well, it, it's so funny, Melissa. I, I've always thought about when we talk about assessment in general, okay, I always think about how do, how do we assess ourselves and evaluate ourselves? Forget how we assess others. How do we assess and evaluate ourselves? And there's even inherent biases, frankly, in how we assess ourselves because most of the way we're judging ourselves is based on family culture, influences we've had as we've gotten older, bosses, managers, leaders who have kind of got inside our head and who have created this, some cases monster, some cases not. And so that's the starting point to me is understanding even when you assess yourself, there are biases involved. What's really shocking to me about how biases play a role in a performance review at a high level is before we get into the obvious biases like gender bias, culture bias, things like that, what really blows me away is the biases of literally as simple as how you're feeling that day. So if you're about to review someone and you've had a negative employee experience, it doesn't even have to be with that person. It could be with someone else on your team. You're going to go in with a different frame of mind and different frame of reference. What's the, what's the weather out? What's your mood? What's the energy level? What's the success level of the team overall? And we're going to get into much more specific biases than that as we go through the show today. But my point is that performance reviews are so outdated in such a bad way to facilitate growth and habit and behavior change that we're going to kill two birds with one stone because not only are we going to uncover the biases and how to get around them, but we're also going to say why performance reviews from a performance management perspective aren't a good way to go anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. I'm excited to talk about that. So, you know, I was thinking about after I took the assessment today, I started kind of going down the list of well, what other biases do I have? You know, where else is this presenting? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I have one that I just I'll put on the table because I'm so curious if you've experienced this one. Um, you, you and I, we've both interviewed a lot of people in our career, and I find it really difficult to interview someone who doesn't make eye contact. Mm. Have you ever experienced a situation where you interview someone who's not making eye contact with you? Well, not only have I, Melissa, when I, when I work with kids in high schools, I teach them this all the time about perception. I say, look, if you're going to be, if you're not going to make eye contact with someone, the assumptions or slash perceptions people will have, your lack confidence, perhaps you're hiding something, right? You're not trustworthy. So I have, and it's a really phenomenal jumping off point because I, there's no doubt I, I, would, I would admit to our listeners that there would be a bias if someone didn't make eye contact, especially coming from someone whose whole business is around communication. Like yeah. that, would, that would be pretty challenging. But, you know, I'll turn it around back to you, Melissa, is, um, you know, how many times have you dealt with a company or when you've made placements in someone where you're asking for feedback and someone says that um, they're passing on a prospective candidate because of a gut feel, you know, have you experienced that? Have your clients shared that kind of feedback with you? Like what have you run into there? Yeah, no, I love that question, Mark. Um, so so if, if you don't mind, I'll get to answer that in, in one second because I want to wrap up our thought on the eye contact piece. Yes. Uh, just a quick story, because I had a client some years back, I was working with the president of a company, and the, we had a good relationship over the phone. And the first time I met him, he might have made 10 seconds of eye contact with me in a 30-minute meeting. 
And I was so put off when I left. I, I swore he never wanted to see me again. I, did, I had no, no idea what the problem was, but it, it, it felt like a, a big problem to me. And of course, I think that our response when somebody's not making eye contact is that we naturally just try harder to make eye contact with them, kind of mm -hmm. chasing their face around the room. <laughs> true, that is true. <laughs> and uh, so, and then, you know, I came back to the office and I had a lovely email from him saying it was a great meeting. And I was just like, I don't understand what's going on. So I was utterly confused about, you know, and I was thinking, how did this guy get to be the president of the company? He can't even have a face-to-face -face meeting in, in, uh, in an effective way, is it from my vantage point, right? And then I stumbled on a TED Talk years later, and wow, wow. it broke open the perspective for me when I learned about the three types of communicators in the world, tactical, audible, and visual. And we are conditioned to communicate visually, right? Because most of the population is visual. And ever since I saw that when somebody's not making eye contact, I realized I'm probably really frustrating them by chasing their face around mm. the room when they're trying to process their thoughts and they can't actually be looking me in the eye when they do that. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there in case the other people are kind of ever experiencing that. Well, and Melissa, I think that that's that was a fabulous story. And I think one of the things, one of my takeaways as I was listening to you is that so much of biases hinge around your core values, right? Mm -hmm. And we've talked in past podcasts about core values, but think about it this way. You know, if you have that in exchange with someone who isn't making eye contact, first of all, one of the things is that may be because not that they don't ever make eye contact, it could be that they're just nervous. And it's a reaction to nerves or stress or anxiety or things like that. Right. That's one thing. But the, the bigger point I want to make is that people, people are all, one of the biases we'll get into in the show today is confirmation bias. And one of the things that ch is challenging when it comes to evaluating and assessing people at a performance level mm -hmm. is because if your biggest core values are around eye contact, body language, having very professional, assertive, confident body language. This person could be the most talented person since sliced bread, but if they don't resonate with you on that body language area, there's a good chance you won't hire them or you won't give them opportunities for advancement. Mm -hmm. So, and then, and then Melissa, on the flip side, and I don't mean to get so micro on this, but on the flip side, you could meet someone who uh, does everything well in an interview and they don't send a thank you note or they don't send the kind of thank you note you'd want. And that's a disqualifier you because that's such an etiquette, you know, professionalism core value, then you could have a bias around that. Right. So it's, it's really a great point you're bringing up. Well, and I, and I think what you're, to your point, it's so true. And, and that's a great segue to that question that you asked. I think it's such a great question on, you know, I've heard it, if I had a nickel for every time I heard someone say, I, I just keep on my finger on it. I just have a gut feel, it's not the right fit. And I really think that's a cop out, honestly. Um, and, I, and I've experienced it myself where something's just not jiving. But you know, when, when somebody says that to me now, I will respond back with, well, let's look at the questions that you're asking. Are, are they the same questions that you're asking all of the candidates? Because I think that it's important to have a process that creates an equal playing field. Mm -hmm. A lot of 
interviewers go into interviews with a free in a freestyle. And it, it, it <laughs> <laughs> do I. I yeah. love talking to people and I don't want a script. I, yeah. I want to get to know them, right? Uh, nothing wrong with that. Somewhere in the interview, I, I really think that there needs to be a, 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 um, a designated time for the standard questions so that every person is given equal opportunity to, to respond. And the questions being related to the skills and the values necessary to do the job, right? Um, so, so then I'll, I'll try to focus managers back to the questions and really get them thinking about, well, how did the person answer in questions in such a way where you, you can't see how they have the essential skills or the essential uh, values for the job? Because, and, and when you do that, it, it really starts to shine a light on, you know, whether or not the person really is qualified or whether it just doesn't feel like a fit because they don't fit with me. Not so much a fit with a job. Yeah. And, and, you know, Melissa, I think we do things a lot personally and professionally without what I would refer to as a template. And so when you're talking about an interviewing, really, if you take a step back and think about it as, as a listener to our podcast, it's so critical, right? Because if you are asking people different questions, not only is that playing into your biases, but you can't do an apples to apples comparison at the end because you're just going to get a whole different slew of answers. What also, what also rings true to me, Melissa, is one of the things that I would like to see, I mean, there's a lot of ways I'd like to see performance management reviews change, but one of the ways I'd like to see them change is people being reviewed on specific core competencies, right? And what are the key core competencies that you need to do this job effectively? And, you know, I think about, we both have kids, um, and I think about if we said to one of our children, okay, this is what I'm hoping you accomplish in school this semester, if we gave them five goals or they gave us five goals for that matter, and they didn't accomplish the five goals, I don't think unilaterally we would think that was a failure. You know, we would want to understand, well, why didn't they accomplish them? And, you know, did they accomplish some other things along the way? Mm -hmm. But I think when it comes to reviews to create that level playing field, I think part of the way it needs to be done is you identify specific core competencies. Because Melissa, one of the challenges I see with bias and review is the Likert scale. And with mm. the Likert scale, the more research I've done, I've understood that most managers will default to, and by the way, if you don't know the Likert scale, if you're a listener, it's that one to five with five being the best, one being the worst, three being average. That's, that's the general Likert scale. And the bias happens with the perfor performance because people tend to be biased towards threes because they don't want to inflate the person and think they're just so good at it. So you're not going to keep trying to be better. And they don't want to break the person's heart. So they just go in the middle. Mm -hmm. and, and, then, and then, of course, that's horrible because the person really isn't getting an accurate portrayal right. of where they need to improve. And I think, Melissa, if you focus on core competencies and specific things, you know, writing skills, presentation skills, um, coaching skills, motivating skills, whatever, then it's pretty more, it's more straightforward. You're either excelling at these or you're not. And you're either accelerating at them with examples or you're not with examples. You know, Mark, I, I love what you're saying because I think it hits on something that I see happen in both performance management and in um, the assessment process during the hiring process. And that is that I, I think sometimes a over, 
um, overly focusing on an individual's performance without looking outside of that to the way that the person actually elevates the team. Mm. Uh, and that is, that is um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, if you're hiring people, well, for example, if you hire a superstar, that's great. They might have phenomenal individual performance for you, but they might actually create a toxic situation in, within the team. So I, I think that it's really important to look beyond just the individual performance and consider the way that somebody is actually helping to elevate others in the team. In fact, one company I know of uh, does group interviews and they pair people and the people interviewing are working together on a project for 30 minutes, but their directive is you accomplish, this is the problem that we need you to solve together and your job is to make your partner look really good. And that's, so that's one way that companies, you know, can kind of go about trying to assess if people are going to be good team players and helping to elevate, you know, their peers. Um, but I, I, you know, I think that, you know, we just need to be mindful of how we're assessing from both angles. So Melissa, let me push you on that a little bit, because when you, it's, a, it's such an interesting thought about elevating the team, but does the, but you know, there's different ways, there's different characteristics or qualities you can demonstrate to elevate a team. So do you feel like at all you could get some um, biases coming in there? Because if you have someone on your team that you have identified certain qualities that really do seem to elevate the rest of the team, could you focus during an interview process, whether it's freestyling or what, whatever, focusing on too much on those specific qualities you know, from like a similarity bias kind of thing. Like, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Mark, I think that's such a great point because it's important to take things, I think, a step further in you know, having the standard questions and also having a, a, a scoring system or a scorecard so that you're weighing the importance of a particular skill or value and weighing the assessment of an individual's mm. rating therein and matching that because you know it is very easy to get wrapped up in something that you perceive to be you know really strong and get excited about that and kind of just let that train run you know kind of uh, uh, run wild so you know I, I think that that is a really good point that you bring up Melissa do you you know what I was thinking about when you were talking about the freestyle interview questions because I was thinking about how I interview I'm being a little selfish here I guess yeah. um, but Go my ahead. question is is I don't, I'm not getting your message to be not to, you know, be, be willing to go off script. I know that's not what you're saying. So my question is, I sometimes feel the pressure that if I have a set questions to, to make the playing field level for every, for everybody, and then I freewheel and ask maybe three, four questions, like after the interview, I'll make a note that I asked those additional questions to make sure like for future interview, like is that what you would typically recommend? Does it have to be that specific? Like what are your thoughts on that? No, I, th I think the freestyle, um, it's important for a couple of reasons. One, you don't want to, it, I don't want interviews to feel robotic. Um, I mean, we have actual, uh, we have robots now that, that take part in the hiring process that, you know, can kind of cover that, those areas, honestly. So um, one, we don't want it to feel robotic and two, developing a, a trust and rapport requires just having some conversation. 
So, you know, but I, I love your idea to make note about the questions that you asked and those responses, because honestly, there may be things that come to light. Um, one, through that process about the person that does give some valuable context to what, you know, the, the other questions that are standard. And two, you might discover that there's other things you want to work into the interview process with future candidates. So Melissa, I think part of the challenge I run into with companies is a lot of the people doing the managing, doing the hiring would probably acknowledge even openly that they do let biases impact mm -hmm. their ability to hire, manage people, so on and so forth. And you know, I've said this to you before, like one of my biggest pet peeves is this thing called the writing reflex. And the writing mm -hmm. reflex spelled R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G is basically when you do the critical thinking for someone and you tell them how to solve a problem, how to change a habit, how to fix a behavior. And so what I mean is, if you and I encountered a manager, okay, and let's say you were talking to a manager and they're like, yeah, Melissa, I gotta be honest with you. I really probably, when I'm interviewing people, I probably do let those biases come into play. A lot of people know they do it, mm -hmm. but how do you, guide someone to say, well, great, good that you have that self-awareness, but how are you going to stop doing it? Because that to me, Melissa, is the biggest challenge of all. Yeah. And man, Mark, um, I love how you just closed that up with great that you have that self-awareness. Because I think that's, that's kind of, you know, the, th that's the only thing that I can say, right? At that point is, right. That you, right? I, I mean, yes. you, you're not going to, you're not going to, punish it out of anybody. <laughs> so, um, you know, I really, when I'm consulting with clients, I really try to get them to talk to me about why something is important. It, you know, if they're telling me that this is a, this is putting somebody in the no pile or, you know, the yes pile, then it's like, okay, well then let, let's examine and help me understand why that's important. And, you know, sometimes it just does come down to, um, this is just my personal preference. And, you know, I'm there to support, you know, as a recruiter. So sometimes it is, it's honestly a little bit of a sticky situation. I've, I've had some requests um, in my time that I've, I've had to just kind of uh, gracefully bow out of um, just because I, I didn't feel like it was the right way to be going about things. So I needed to, to um, let them know that, you know, they, they could, certainly do that, but it, I wouldn't be the partner for them. So, um, yeah, well, was, all those sad things. Yeah, I was reading recently about this concept called the carrot stick mentality, not carrot stick, the carrot stick mentality. And the carrot stick mentality speaks to how, and you made me think of it when you said you're not going to punish it out of them. So the carrot and stick mentality is the carrot is the reward and the stick is the consequence. Mm -hmm. And so, the idea that, that we try to elicit behavior change through reward and consequence as our primary drivers, it doesn't really work consistently. And that's why when, and I, I know you and I work with a lot of HR people too, and that's why when I think at HR, probably the number one skill for an HR person would be to how to facilitate and elicit behavior change mm -hmm. and, and not relying on the rewards and consequences as much. And so I think part of the challenge here is, and, and I don't know if you experienced this, Melissa, but this word mindfulness that we've talked occasionally on the show about is this, 
being present, being self-aware of behaviors you're actually doing and, and more to the point behaviors you don't want to be doing. And I find the hardest part of mindfulness for me is like, if you made me make a list of the things I wanted to be mindful of on a daily basis, I could probably come up with like a hundred or 200 things. Um, yeah. but this, right. But, but like from the time you wake up in the morning until the time you go to bed at night, there's so many things like, wait, I want to eat healthier. No, I shouldn't have that. Oh, I should have that. I should be out exercising. I shouldn't be looking at computers as much as I am. I have Zoom exhaustion. I'm returning too many emails. <laughs> so this is the thing about habit change and why I know you and I are so big about it, whether it's recruiting, hiring, managing, because at the end of the day, even if you get people to be aware, it's getting them to do things differently, what it's about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, and that is honestly, um, you know, for you to be asking me how I go about that, I, I'd have to just turn the question around on you and say, oh, that's your area. <laughs> well, but, but Melissa, it, you actually, see, you just said it a couple of minutes ago, and this is the, this is the problem. A lot of people are looking for some deep golden chalice fountain of youth solution to problems. And frankly, you said it, the why, like, right? So if you're someone, if you're an interviewer, if you're a hiring manager, right? And you know that your biases are impacting company culture or long-term performance and impacting long-term performance, then that's when the, no writing reflex. That's when if you report to me, I'm gonna say, well, listen, Melissa, why do we need to do this differently? Forget me. Don't even listen to me. Why do you think we need to do it differently? And if we empower people to come up with the, the intrinsic motivators in the why, we don't need to use the writing reflex. So mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of it. Well, Mark, I think that's, that's really interesting that you're saying that because as you were just saying that, I, I realized, you know, in some cases, I've observed managers who, I think it's a function of fear in some in some uh situations where you know there it's the old you know devil you know is better than the devil you don't know so as they're trying to top grade or up level their their team um I'm sorry to use these terms that are i like those i'm all excited about those terms okay all right i was like i think those are overused but okay great I'm glad you term. like them <laughs> um but you know they say that that's what they want to do but they don't do it and a lot of times I think it's really rooted in fear. And sometimes the fear is that, you know, if they, they're going to hire people who are going to see their faults and see where they lack. Mm. And that's um, just a, a, creates a resistance. So some of these conversations, I think, that help, help to uncover that. And so you realize that their biases are just, once again, kind of they're protecting them from possible success. So... Mm. Yeah, and I think, Melissa, for me, one of the suggestions I would make to our listeners is because there are so many things to be mindful of on a daily basis, when we're talking about, let's just use, let's just use either interview, it's the same answer, whether it was hiring and interviewing or managing performance. And that is, there's probably about eight to 10 legitimate biases when it comes to managing people and interviewing. I mean, I'm, there could be more, but those are the most common, okay? And rather than put the pressure on yourself during the interview, which we want you to be mindful of it when you're interviewing or managing people, how about evaluating yourself after the interview? And I'll give you a very simple, perfect example. 
there's, there's something called uh, recency bias and spillover bias. Are you familiar with those? Mm -hmm. So to me, um, one of the things I've never understood about performance reviews is if you're doing them once a year, what are you doing along the way in the last year to remember the things you would need to know when it comes time to review? You know, you're not going to remember what happened 10 months ago. So yeah. that's where the recency bias comes into play, where you're probably going to overinflate things that just happened in, in your memory in the last few months. And spillover bias is what you'd expect. It's the opposite. It's just basically you're letting old memories supersede anything that's happened and you're hanging on to, well, they've always been a great employee and they've always been good at such and such. So I just think that, yes, you need to be mindful, but I think the other key is when it's over, have a checklist, look at your biases. Did I, did I, did I do any of that? Because if you did, it's not too late. You can go back and correct it and yeah, even right. the playing field. But yeah. I think too many people don't self-evaluate, either they don't have the tools or they don't want to make the time because they say they're too busy or, or, or just don't do it. So I think that's critical. I think you're so right. And Mark, I'm, I'm like very aware of the recency bias and I have been for years because I was a salesperson and whatever performance review time was coming up, that was the time to time my deals. Wow. So they were popping like popcorn. Wow. Wow. That's great. Right. I mean, so that's, that's how I became kind of aware of it in, instinctively or intuitively. Wow. But, uh, but then the term came years later, but it totally get it. Um, and totally played the game. <laughs> Wait, Melissa, can I just interject one quick thing on that? Yeah. I can't think of a better example on this podcast today than the one you just gave, because it basically speaks to the problem with biases that if you're a salesperson, you're going to leverage. Now you're on the other side and you're going to leverage the recency bias because right. you know it works to your advantage to do so. Right. So that's beautiful. Like that's about as good of an example as you can get. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So Mark, I know you and I, uh, we share a lot of sentiments around uh, performance reviews and the whole management process. And I'm just so curious about your perspective of the, the rating systems and, and um, I, you know, the whole annual timing and things of that sort. If you, could, if you could design an ideal performance management system, what would it look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I can answer that because I thought a lot about it. And I think, first of all, it comes, it centers around two simple concepts. One is coaching and one is giving and receiving positive and constructive feedback. And, you know, Melissa, you know, you can see my background. I'm a big sports fan, but one of the people I really look up to in sports is Bill Belichick, because mm -hmm. to me, one of the things he does internally, and I've read lots of stories and books about this is he knows how to get to balance constructive and positive feedback. You can't be the kind of manager if all you're ever seen is giving constructive feedback, which by the way is a, is a negativity bias. It's another mm -hmm. bias uh, that comes up. So my answer to you is this. There is no one answer because everybody has different amounts of people on their team, right? So if you have a team of 50 people, you're not going to be able to meet with them every week. If you have a team of five people, you probably should meet with them every week. But at the end of the day, it all is based on the amount of people and the bandwidth you have, but it's got to come around consistent coaching, performance reviews in small bites, 10, 15 minute bites. Mm -hmm. Create a template that says, hey, we're going to talk once a month if you have the bandwidth based on the amount of people you have and put five questions. And I think it's, 
I think it's giving effective feedback. I think it's being an effective listener in those feedback sessions so you can learn about what you can do better as a manager in a 360 kind of capacity. And I think it's also the frequency. And honestly, if you have 50 employees or 100 employees and you can really only have time to speak to someone once or twice a year, then you got to speak up. It's not going to get the job done. No matter how many people you have, you've got to have an impact and let them, because that's, because Melissa, that's where everything around employee engagement and productivity and connectivity to the company and the purpose and the vision, there's no two-way communication there. It's not going to happen in most cases. Yeah. So I think it's, it's the frequency. I think it's the small increments of feedback. And I think it's a 360 where you're also receiving feedback from the people you're giving it to. I think those are the three keys. So we can, can we make it official that we do not recommend rating people on a scale? Definitely not. And, um, and listen, people, you know, the hardest thing I think in communication in general is articulating and setting expectations. People want to know what they're going to be reviewed on. Like, I think a lot of people, they go into a review and well, I noticed this and I noticed that. And they're like, whoa, I didn't even know that was a problem or I didn't know. That's a big part too, Melissa. We've got to do a better job setting expectations. Yeah, yeah, that's so foundational. Well, you know, Mark, I think that, you know, it, uh, just kind of in closing things up here, I just have to um, reflect on one of, the, one of the things that you said to me that just is most memorable and really stuck with me. And, and uh, I think about it often is you, you asked me um, what the, um, the number one cause of disagreement was, or some something to that effect, yep, and yep. and and the answer that you gave me was a difference in values, and I think of that so often when I'm about to say, you know, I, I, I'm judging a situation or a person, and saying this is good or bad or this is, you know, uh, you know, this or that, whatever, and I just think, okay, so how how are my values right now different from? this other person's or, or, you know, how, how are we just not aligned? Um, and it's, it just takes it totally out of the, the personal arena and to more of a pragmatic, oh, they're coming at it from this angle. I'm looking at it from this angle. Um, and it's just made that whole thing so much easier for me. Uh, and I think it applies to what we're talking about here with biases. So I'm, I'm grateful to you. I, I, uh, I appreciate you bringing that up for me and just want to share it with our listeners. Well, you know, and I have a follow-up thought, and then I want to ask you one last question before we go, Melissa. You know, my follow-up thought is that I think one of the best ways to really, at a simple level, understand biases, if you're an HR person, think about the people you're hiring managers. Think about the people who are doing the interviews. Call them in your office. Don't bring out the job description. Don't even bring the job description in the conversation. Look at, the, look at your hiring manager and say, I want you to answer a couple of quick questions for me. Tell me about the qualities and characteristics of your best employee, of your dream hire. Just ask those two questions. Because if you ask those two questions, their open-ended answers without a job description in front of them is gonna tell you where all the biases are gonna lie. Because those are the things that when you ask their feedback when they're hiring, or when you ask their feedback to assess the performance of an existing employee, that's what the, the, the halo it's going to be draped around. Mm -hmm. And so I think it can be very simple and you'll learn so much with two questions. I think that's brilliant. And Mark, it can go in another direction too. 
it, when you're interviewing people, if you have interviewers who meet the person and get to ask them questions without seeing a resume, mm. that wow. can have some real value as well. They meet the human before the paper. So Melissa, the one thing I didn't get to ask you, I just want to cover before we end this, is I want to just talk about culture for a second. So we've, we've talked about how, how biases can impact hiring and performance and stuff, but where do you see, you know, if, if you were to have some of your clients call you and say, well, Melissa, how do we take biases into consideration? I know this is a loaded question for the last question of the show, but in, in simple terms, how, how do we how do we know, how do, the, how do companies know how to incorporate culture ad or culture restriction in the mm. decisions they're making? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, HR and the leadership has to really take charge in this area um, in defining the culture that they want to build and really be protective in designing the interview process and educating the hiring managers to say, these are the values that we're looking for um, and even recognizing where they're current, you know, through assessments with employees, where they're currently falling, falling short. So if you look at your biggest problems within the organization and then track that to the area of values that needs to be reinforced in order to, to, to solve those problems, then, you know, saying, okay, in this case, again, going back to that standard question list and the score, uh, the scoring system, just saying like, these are the values that we really have to be focused on hiring for, especially during this time. Uh, I think that that's how you can take a, a deliberate and controlled approach to hiring and creating a culture that's where you're adding into the culture what you want and not just hiring more people who came from the same schools and who hang out at the same whatnot country club or, or you know, well, it'd be nice if there were, there's no country club members in my organization, to be honest with you. But uh, just for an example, you know, just getting away from the, oh, well, they're the same as the rest of us, so they're a fit. That's just a, not a good well, idea. Well, hey, Melissa, is it possible, though, you made me think of something here. Is it possible to put too much of a bias on culture when hiring? And when, mm -hmm. when you're balancing the core competencies and stuff, have you ever seen that? Is that possible? I, I think that sometimes you have to you have to realize you know you need enough of this but great question because you can totally overkill the job i mean the job is where you start what do you need the person to contribute to the organization sometimes values is is kind of low on the list it's you know it for someone to come in and perform a, a certain set of tasks their value system may not lend or contribute very much at all in that capacity. Hmm. So you're right. You're absolutely right. And you know, Melissa, I think final thought for me today is I think we're at a real crossroads with culture because with the with virtual communication being remote leadership and virtual communication, I could see it going either direction. I could see companies putting less of a value on it because there's mm -hmm. less face-to-face -face interaction in the workplace and this, yep. or you could see even more so because now they're like almost having to put more of an effort in to maintain it with the remote culture. So I think we're at a crossroads on that. Yeah, yeah, we, we are definitely navigating some uncharted territory. And I, I think that we're, we're gonna come out um, with a lot of changes and a lot of insights. All right, great topic, Melissa. This was like, 
I love, you know, I just want our listeners to know, Melissa is always great about coming out with things that are relevant and on the cutting edge. And I, I, after you brought this up to me, it's, it's really been on the top of my mind about how many ways this topic affects so many things in the workplace. So I love it. Great, great thought. Yeah, well, thanks for your feedback, Mark. And th I, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend tonight doing some more of those Harvard assessments and see how bad the situation really is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now have a nice inner voice, Melissa. Whatever you do. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. I I might need to text you if I need some help. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. So, all right. Well, thanks, listeners. Thank you. Take care. Right, thanks. Thanks for joining us on the Catch Him and Keep Him podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss us next time. In the meantime, remember that engaging your people is a daily task and recruiting is a process, not an event. If you need help, just ask. Connect directly with Melissa at franklinprofessionals.com and Mark at mindsetgo.com.